invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to Matthew 5, uh, verse 10 is where we're picking things up this morning. If you're new with us this morning, we have, been, uh, we have started a study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. We have been walking through the Beatitudes through the fall, and uh, we didn't quite make it to the end of the Beatitudes before Christmas, so we're picking things up after being away from uh, this passage for a few weeks, now uh, looking at the final Beatitude, uh, verse 10 and 11 and 12. Nero was the emperor of Rome from 54 A.D. to 68. He he was the Caesar to whom the Apostle Paul appealed in the book of Acts where he said, I appealed to Caesar. It was to this Caesar, this Nero. It it was this, uh, under the reign of this Caesar, Nero, that both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were martyred. In A.D. 64, under Nero's emperorship, uh, came what historians called the first general persecution of Christians. Uh, Though almost certainly started by Nero himself, the great fire that raged through the city of Rome and destroyed much of it was blamed by Nero, blamed uh, on Christians. And so began this uh, great persecution. He subsequently had many Christians uh, hunted down, arrested, and killed in some horrific ways. Some, we know, were sewn into animal skins, dipped in blood, and thrown to wild animals. Others were tied to posts, covered in pitch, and used as, uh, to light his garden parties. Many, many Christians suffered horribly, were put to death in that general, first general persecution of the church. Uh, Both before the persecutions of Nero and and ever since his day, Christians have endured persecution. Estimates put the number of followers of Jesus who have been killed for their faith over 75 million people in the last 2,000 years, 45 million in the 20th century alone. Just uh, a few days ago, I received a report from the mission agency with which I traveled to India three years ago, and in that report, uh, John, who I, I traveled with when I was there, shared that, that Hindu radicals had chased uh, a thousand believers out of their villages in, in the province of Chandisgarh, and they had lost their homes. There were videos circulating of Christians being beaten. This is our brothers and sisters about two weeks ago. They have no home, no food. They've lost everything, everything but Christ. In the eighth and final beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Really, Jesus? Congratulations. Fortunate are you. You lucky bums. Really, Jesus? Blessed are those who are persecuted? Remember, the sermon on the mount as a whole, provides us with a picture of what our, our lives look like when the gospel takes root, when, when we hear and believe the good news announced in Christ, when the Holy Spirit has his way in us, our lives are transformed, we are changed radically. The Sermon on the Mount paints a picture of what that new life looks like. In, in, in this sermon, 
We need to remember that this is a picture of what the inbreaking kingdom of God does and that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this by our own strength and striving. And if we forget that, this sermon will become for us either frustrating idealism, something we can never live up to, or oppressive legalism, something that will absolutely crush us. But when we recognize that the life described here is a life produced in us by the good news, by Christ, by His Spirit at work in us, then it becomes helpful. Portrait. The Beatitudes with which the sermon begins provide us with a picture of Christian character. These characteristics, these qualities are not natural human qualities. Jesus didn't show up in Galilee and walk around looking for beatitude people. No, Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom that in his coming, God's reign was breaking into this broken, sinful creation. And when people heard that, their lives were changed. They became beatitude people. Remember also that these Beatitudes, these eight qualities, these characteristics are not not describing eight different kinds of people, that that one is poor in spirit, that another mourns, that another is meek. No, these qualities, these characteristics are inseparable and they go together. They are interrelated qualities. They belong all together in the life. They're manifested in the life of every disciple of Jesus, every person who hears and believes the good news. Though they all go together, their order is significant. The first one provides us with the essential starting point, and each one follows naturally from that. Jesus began, let me review for you, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they come to God empty-handed, meriting nothing but his judgment, who come knowing they desperately need his mercy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where it all begins. And then blessed are those who mourn. When we see our sin, the the darkness of our own hearts, the wickedness of our own hearts and our inclinations, and not only ours but that of the world, we weep. And then blessed are the meek. When we understand who we are, In our desperate need for Christ, we no longer feel the compulsion to defend ourselves before others. We know more than they do, and so we can respond with gentleness, entrusting ourselves into the hands of Christ who loves us and has redeemed us. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are those who are righteous. Blessed are those who recognize they're not, but they hunger and thirst for it. They hunger and thirst to be right with God, walking in a right relationship with God. They they long for the right relatedness of all things. Blessed are the merciful. Having experienced and received God's amazing mercy, disciples of Jesus can't help but be shaped by it to extend mercy to others. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not speaking of moral purity, we know already, blessed are the poor in spirit, that we can't make ourselves pure. Blessed are those. Purity of heart means desiring one thing, that is, we desire Christ alone. Purity of heart is desiring one thing, the one who alone can make us pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the peace lovers, the peace seekers, the peacekeepers, the peacemakers, those who have encountered the peace, the Prince of Peace, and have experienced 
peace with God through him and now desire that all people would, would know that. And so we run into the chaos. We run into the darkness proclaiming the Prince of Peace. This morning we come to the final beatitude. You'll notice one thing about this final beatitude. We're going to look at verse 10, which is the beatitude proper, but also verses 11 and 12, which are an expansion, an explanation, if you will. We only encounter that with this final beatitude. So we're going to look at those three verses this morning. I'll read them to you, beginning verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John Stott says this, it may seem strange that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution, from the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility. But what we will come to recognize through our study this morning is that persecution should not, is not something that is surprising. Again, Stott says persecution is simply the clash between irreconcilable value systems. See, as beatitude people, as as those who have heard and believed the good news, those who are being transformed by God's work in us through His Spirit, we are are becoming beatitude people. Those in whom God's inbreaking kingdom reign is, is changing us. And when the kingdom of God bumps up against the kingdoms of this world, there is inevitably a clash. Chuck Colson spoke of the of kingdoms in conflict. As we dive into the text this morning, I want to make some, begin by making some preliminary observations. Bear with me for a second. This eighth beatitude is a double beatitude. Look with me. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you. Twice, double-barreled. It's a double beatitude. Why? And why only this one? Well, perhaps because Jesus knew this, this might just be the hardest one to hear. Second, in this beatitude, the pronouns shift from third-person pronoun they to second-person pronoun you. Remember, Jesus is on a hill in Galilee overlooking the Sea of Galilee and his disciples are with him in crowds and he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you. Third, it is the first time in all the Beatitudes that Jesus explicitly brings himself into the Beatitude. He's there in all of them, but here he he speaks of uh, blessed are those who are persecuted on account of me, because of me. He's always been there, but now explicitly. And fourth, and this is really important, it is important to note that Jesus is speaking about here, the persecution he's speaking about is not limited only to physical persecution that that includes torture and martyrdom. It, It includes, as we read on, it includes being insulted. 
It includes being lied about, having all kinds of evil said against us. To be sure, the specifics spelled out here in our text are not intended to provide us with a comprehensive a list of, of what persecution looks like. Persecution includes all the opposition that we will experience as disciples of Jesus. Fifth, it's vital for us to note what Jesus, what exactly Jesus says. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Note what Jesus does not say. He, he does not say that... He does not bless those who are persecuted or insulted because they are obnoxious. He, he does not pronounce blessing on, on, on those who are persecuted or, or insulted because they, they lack tact, because they act foolishly. It, it is persecution experienced because of righteousness. It is persecution experienced on account of Jesus that he says we are blessed for. A number of years ago, I think about 11 years ago now, perhaps some of you will recall this story, a pastor in Florida loaded a trailer with nearly 3,000 copies of the Quran, soaked it with kerosene and was going to drive to a park and publicly burn it. He was arrested on the way. That is not this kind of persecution. When we act foolishly in ungodly, unloving, unwise ways, that is not what God blesses. He blesses persecution and suffering that is experienced on account of Him, because we are following Him in faithfulness and all that that means. Secondly, I want to turn and remind you of, of what the term righteousness means. If you were with us when we looked at the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you may recall, let me review when I, we ask what the term righteousness means, if you went out on the street or even if I asked you, many of us would think of, of a, sort of a moral checklist, doing certain things, not doing other things. And there is a moral sense for sure to the word righteous. There is also biblically a legal sense. In the book of Romans, Paul says that we are made righteous. We are declared righteous. We are justified through Christ. That is, Christ bears our penalty, and we are, get credit for his obedience and righteousness. We are, we are righteousized, if you will. But neither of those really get at the sense of what Jesus, uh, how Jesus uses this term here in the Beatitudes. Righteousness here, uh, really, we need to understand the Old Testament concept of, of what's going on here, and it, it speaks about things being the way they're supposed to be. One Old Testament scholar says, righteousness is the content of God's will. Righteousness is what God desires. What does he desire? He desires shalom. He desires peace. He desires all things to be as he intended them to be. He, he desires that all of humanity would be in relationship with him, that there would be harmony between us and God, there would be harmony between us and one another, between us and creation and within ourselves. That's God's desire. That's God's will. Righteousness then speaks to the right relatedness of all things, all things being as they were intended to be. Christ came into the world for the sake of righteousness, to to set things right, to bring us into right relationship with God, to bring us into right relationship with one another, to bring us into right relationship with creation. So here we need to understand this isn't 
This isn't getting at some list of do's and don'ts. It's about the right relatedness of all things. That is God's desire. Third, I want to ask this question. Why, why is persecution a mark of the gospelized? Why is persecution a mark of those who are disciples of Jesus? I have been contending that the Beatitudes are not so much prescriptive. That is, this is not Jesus saying, hey, here's how you need to, uh, to behave. These are the qualities you need to exert. He is rather, this is descriptive. He's saying, this is what a life looks like when the gospel takes root. These qualities, these characteristics come out because of the gospel. This is descriptive. When we hear and believe the good news, when God's Spirit begins working in us, we are changed. And so my question is, so why does hearing and believing the good news result in persecution? The answer is found in John's Gospel and something Jesus says in John's Gospel. Jesus says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The word world here means not the earth, not physical matter. It means humanity in rebellion against God. Jesus said that we will be hated and persecuted because the world hated and persecuted him. As we are gospelized, we are transformed into women and men, boys and girls, teenagers, young adults. We, we are transformed into people who look more and more like Jesus. And when we look more and more like Jesus, we will be treated how Jesus was treated. So then we come to another question. Why was Jesus persecuted? Certainly not because he was tactless or obnoxious. Then why? Daryl Johnson identifies three reasons, and I want to follow him at this point. First, as Johnson notes, righteousness is experienced by the unrighteous as either a blessing or a threat, especially perfect righteousness. Unless we acknowledge our unrighteousness, before Jesus, his perfect righteousness will threaten us. It, it exposes our sin. It, it calls for us to change. Remember, many of you, I'm sure, can identify with this. I have worked in the past in different contexts, construction. I played baseball on a bar league team years ago in Abbotsford, and people would find out I was a Christian or find out I was a youth pastor, and suddenly... In most cases, their language would, oh, sorry, their language would change. Not all of them. See, righteousness exposes unrighteousness. And so if we are unwilling to acknowledge our unrighteousness before Christ's perfect righteousness, his righteousness will threaten us. Without a word, it does this. Automatically, it exposes that. Think of the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a sellout. He was a short Jewish man. He, he was in bed with the Romans. He, he had been hired by the Roman, the hated Roman Empire, to collect taxes from his fellow 
fellow Jew, Jewish brothers and sisters, and he did what tax collectors did. He gouged his countrymen. He took more than he needed to, more than was required. They were authorized to do that by Rome and under the protection of Rome, and he became very, very rich. He was greedy, a greedy cheat. And then one day, Jesus came, and, and he wanted to see him, and so he was a short man. He climbed the fig newton tree, you remember that, the fig tree? And Jesus came under the tree, and, and he looked up, and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to dinner at your house. And before dinner is over, Zacchaeus says, half of what I have I give to the poor. And if I cheated anyone, I will pay them back four times. See, that's what righteousness does if we are willing to acknowledge our unrighteousness. It's a blessing. It's a gift. We, we in fact, through faith in Christ, we are credited with his perfect holiness, his righteousness, his right relatedness with the Father becomes ours. But if we refuse to bow before Christ, if we persist in our rebellion, in our unrighteousness, then then you and I will want to get rid of Christ because his very presence brings discomfort and conviction. And that's what happened to Jesus. And if you and I are his disciples, we will experience the same. Our very presence will make people feel uncomfortable and convicted. The second thing, Jesus disturbs the status quo. He, He rocks the boat. Jesus lived out this righteousness, this right relatedness of the gospel. He embodied a new way of life, of God's in-breaking kingdom. And that challenges everything in the the, the existing kingdom. There's this clash of kingdoms. At first, he, he began to disturb things simply because he brought the wrong people to the party. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. See, the the religious establishment said. Clean yourselves up and then come to God. And Jesus said, no, 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 come to my Father and and let me clean you up. Reggie McNeil, I love this, he he speaks of the church and he says, you know, so often as a church, we want to clean the fish before we catch them. The reality is Jesus came for the sick. He came for the lost. He came for those who are broken. We we should be a place where where addicts and, and broken, sinful people can come as they are and be transformed by Christ. See, this kind of grace is odious in the church far too often. Jesus upset the religious and cultural establishment by breaking human rules. Think of the many stories about Sabbath keeping. Jesus Jesus understood, he understood the Sabbath command. See, the Sabbath was a gift of rest. It was a gift to be received and enjoyed, and yet the religious leaders made it into a list of rules to keep. Don't do this, don't do that. This many steps. Jesus never violated the Sabbath. He violated their rules, and they were cheesed off. Jesus rocks the boat because his presence manifests the kingdom. In Mark 5, Jesus shows up across the lake and encounters a man possessed by many demons. A man who cannot be tied or chained. He lives in a graveyard, runs around naked, screaming, completely avoided, avoided by everyone. 
You talk about a a picture of of broken humanity, things not the way they're supposed to be. And through that man's encounter with Jesus, he is set free by these demonic powers and the people of the village come and they see him dressed and sitting in his right mind. And you'd think they'd rejoice, but they say, Jesus, please leave. Go away. Go away. If the world system, religious or secular, cannot handle the gospelizer, then what will happen to the gospelized? What will happen to those who have heard and believed and are being transformed by the good news? Think of the Apostle Paul in Philippi. He's, he's in the city of Philippi preaching the gospel in this slave woman possessed by an evil spirit just follows him around yelling out after him day after day after day and finally exasperated Paul turns around and he commands the demon to leave this woman alone and the people her owners who have been getting rich off of her fortune telling are furious and they have Paul and Silas arrested flogged violently and imprisoned because they proclaim the gospel and set this woman free Paul goes to the city of Ephesus, a city famous for their worship of the goddess Diana. And there he preaches the gospel over the course of two years and people, people turn to Jesus and they leave the magic arts. They burn all their, their scrolls that have to do with, uh, with witchcraft and, and the like and they stop buying the little you know, snow globes of Diana that the silversmiths were making, making their living from. And they lose their mind because the gospel is impacting the economics of their city. And they, 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 they work the city up into this frenzied riot. Because Paul proclaimed the good news of Christ and people turned from sin to the worship of the one true God. King, the kingdom of God always messes with the idols of our world. See, if we keep our faith in the private realm, everything's fine, but... But when we live it out in the open, when we live faithfully as Jesus calls to, as his missionary people proclaiming him, and Christ's disciples will get caught in a crunch. Third, we think of the way Jesus spoke of himself. Think of his I am sayings in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus' claims about who he was and what that means uh, challenges people's presuppositions about everything. And, and if we proclaim those truths, if we hold to those truths, if we preach them, if we share them, if we say that Jesus is the only way, then we will find ourselves in the crosshairs. Jesus' claims challenge everything. Either the old order will bow to him as the king of kings, or the old order will seek to get rid of him and those who are his. So forth, let me ask this question. How does Jesus call us to respond to persecution? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. How does Jesus call us to respond? Let's begin by answering negatively what, what he does not call us to do. We're, we're called not to retaliate. We're going to encounter that as we move in the coming weeks now into the Sermon on the Mount uh, properly beyond the introduction of the Beatitudes. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for them. 
turn the other cheek. We, we are called when we are persecuted, when we are lied about, when we are insulted. We are not to be those who retaliate. Likewise, we're, we're not to sulk. We're not to, to lick our wounds and feel sorry for ourselves and self-pity. We're, we're not to just grin and bear it like Stoics put on a brave face. We're certainly not to be surprised by it. Suffering is to be expected. So what is the answer? Uh, what, how are we supposed to respond? Jesus says that we are to get this. He says, rejoice and be glad. In fact, Luke's version of this beatitude says, leap for joy. Really, Jesus? Leap for joy when we're persecuted? Leap for joy when we're insulted, when people say all kinds of evil against us? Leap for joy? How? It's not that we are to be glad in the fact, about the fact of persecution. We are those who mourn over sin, our own sin and the sin of the world. We are those who long for, for peace, for righteousness. We long for all to submit to Christ and know, know him as the Prince of Peace. And so when persecution comes as a result of the sin of the world, we're, we're not happy about that. We, are, we don't feel joy about that. We can feel regret. But still in the face of it, Jesus calls us as his people to rejoice. Why? How, how and why? Two reasons. First is this. Jesus says, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do we understand as disciples of Jesus that persecution is a badge of identity? It is a badge of identity. It's proof of who we are, of whose we are. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, but if you look at it in the right way, you will find a cause for rejoicing and will turn to Satan and say, thank you, you are giving me proof that I am a child of God, otherwise I should never be persecuted like this for Christ's sake. It is an identity marker. It marks us as his disciples. Lloyd-Jones goes on, he says, but if we are thus being maligned falsely and persecuted for his sake, it must mean that our lives have become like his. We are being gospelized. We are being transformed in the citizens of his kingdom. We are his. And look again to the promise of this beatitude. Remember the beatitude, the, 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 the sandwich I talked about way back? Months ago, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here, the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, persecution means that we are, it shows us that we are citizens of, of heaven, that we are living the life of the future, that God's in-breaking kingdom has taken root, and we are being changed. Therefore, rejoice and be glad. The second reason it's because great is your reward in heaven. Again, Lloyd-Jones says, a Christian is a man, a person, who should always be thinking of the end. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set your hearts and minds on things above. Persecution because of righteousness, because of Jesus, is proof of, 
of where we're going. That, that we are destined for heaven. That the kingdom of heaven is ours. That one day, one day you and I will stand in the presence of the one we love. The one who loved us first. Who gave himself for us. And we will experience glory and joy unmeasured. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some worry that we can be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. Perhaps you've heard that before. But that is really a needless fear. C.S. Lewis writes this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Those are challenging words. Mark Buchanan in his book, Things Unseen, puts it like this, to be a real earthly good requires a certain fearlessness, a freedom from the fear of death, from the loss of property or status or title or comfort, from the threats of tyrants, the power of armies, the day of trouble. If we are going to be of earthly good, we need to live boldly with a certain fearlessness. So we're called to. So what does this mean for us today? The Christian life, the life that we are called into is a life that is formed by the cross. It is a cruciformed life. Jesus said in Mark 8, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. At the heart of the gospel stands a cross. God in Christ put on flesh and became one of us. He came out of love for us. And Jesus lived the life of complete obedience to the Father. He lived in right relatedness to the Father. He he was holy and obedient fully. And then... He willingly went to the cross. He willingly laid down his life. He was arrested and tried and beaten and nailed to a cross to pay a penalty that you and I deserve out of love for us so that all who repent and believe, who who put their faith in him, receive his righteousness. And he bears our penalty, our sin. The heart of the gospel is a cross, and that cross shapes our lives as disciples of a crucified king. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, you remain, according to Scripture, you remain a subject of the kingdoms of this world, kingdoms that stand in loggerheads with the kingdom of God that is breaking in, but that can change even this morning. You can surrender to Christ. You can become a subject of the King King Jesus this morning. You can believe the good news. Today, the gospel can begin to put down roots in your heart 
and he will transform you. But let me be clear. The Christian life is, is not an easy life. I, I don't want to stand before you and say, hey, come to Jesus and everything will be great. Come to Jesus and he's going to make everything amazing. Come to Jesus and be persecuted. Come to Jesus and suffer insults. Come to Jesus and be lied about. Jesus says that as we are transformed by his gospel, this is to be expected. It will not be easy, but let me say this, it will be worth it. It will be good. As Jesus here brings the Beatitudes to a close, Jesus emphatically makes the point that as his disciples, we will be marked Marked with these qualities, marked with these characteristics, we will be those who are poor in spirit, who come empty-handed. We will be those who mourn, who have tear-stained faces because of our own sin and the sin of the world. We will be the meek, those who don't have to fight to be the front of the line or defend ourselves. We can love others gently. We will be those who hunger and thirst, who long for things to be the way they're supposed to be. We will be those who exude mercy because we have experienced it. We will grow into those who desire just one thing, and that's Jesus. And we will run into the fray as peacemakers, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And when we are all those things, we will inevitably also be those who are persecuted. Persecuted because of righteousness, persecuted on account of Jesus, and such suffering marks us as his. Therefore, even in the face of difficulties and pain, even in the face of lies and insults, even in the face of, yes, even death, we can be those who leap for joy. For ours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we bow before you today and we acknowledge that these are hard words. Give us courage. Fill us with your spirit. Lift our eyes to, to you and to heaven, to things above. And Lord, transform us. We pray this in your name. Amen.